And so today's sermon kind of sets up what we will be doing over those next five weeks as well. And I've never really preached a sermon on communion, the Lord's Supper, but today we're going to talk about that. And I don't think I'll be able to answer all your questions. If you've even thought about questions, you probably just say, well, we take the Lord's Supper and you just take it as it is and you go on. But uh, today we're going to kind of pause for a bit and think uh, theologically about why we do what we do and what does the Bible have to say about the Lord's Supper and the significance behind that. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, kind of looking at verses 17 through 34. Uh, and so we'll, we'll get to that point and we'll kind of look at some other passages as well. But before we start, I want to just share that I grew up in a very similar church to, to the one that I'm in today. Uh, First Baptist Church, Toria, Texas is where I grew up and went to church. And we practiced the Lord's Supper quarterly. And it was, it was a very um, great experience. I know as a child, I didn't have kids' church when I was in that. So when the Lord's Supper would come around, I'd always wanted to grab a little juice thing out of the trays or to get some bread or something like that. And it wasn't until uh, really the, the Christmas Eve service that they would actually, we'd have a loaf of bread at that point. And the kids would often be found in the kitchen eating the rest of the loaves of the bread because it was about six o'clock and we were all hungry. But the way I grew up doing communion was, was very specific, and, and there were certain ways of how we did that that went back to the tradition of, of our church. And I didn't know that you could take communion any other way until I went to college and began to experience uh, going to some different churches. I thought the way we did communion was how the Bible talked about you're to do communion. And I came to find out that isn't necessarily the case. I had a couple different unique opportunities of partaking in the Lord's Supper and one of the first and more unique times was when I was at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. I was 20 years old. I'd, you know, never really ventured beyond the panhandle of Texas. I'd gone on mission trips to other places, but I was in D.C. for a summer interning for a, a nonprofit group. And I spent every Sunday going to different churches. And one Sunday, a friend and I, we went to the National Cathedral and they talked about, there was a sermon, I wouldn't call it a sermon, it was just a pep talk, I think the guy talked about, it was very much devoid of the gospel, but we did take communion, and it was really something special of getting to partake in communion at this place, and this was in about 2009, and y'all may not remember this, some of you probably do, but the swine flu was going around, and, and they were talking about what, what we're going to do, and that you're going to file down the center aisles, and we're going to walk down to the front, and they'll give you the wafer, and then you know, I thought you would maybe dip something, but they were all drinking out of the same cup, and I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm a germaphobe, just a little bit, like, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that, and so, but they did that, and they said, well, you can cross your arms if you don't want to take the cup, and, and so that's what I did, and it was, it was a really powerful moment. There I was in this immaculate church, and people from all around the world that I didn't know, but I know that many of them were professing, at least faith in Christ in some way. And I remember that moment. It, it had a profound impact on me. And, and then there was a second occasion, and this was, I was on a mission trip, and we were in the Balkan states. We were in Macedonia, and we were in a little village, and we went to have a, a, a service among gypsies. And they wanted to take communion, and they didn't have grape juice at that point of taking communion and they gave us homemade wine in like little solo cups like little bitty white styrofoam cups or something and, and they didn't just give you a little bit but it, it if 
felt like it was a half a glass full of homemade wine. And it, it, what, you know, I was 19 years old, and our professor was like, yes, everyone's going to take communion at this point. And so, it, it, but it, in that moment, it was this, again, another profound experience that I had of being able to partake in the Lord's Supper with fellow believers in that place and in that time. And so all of that has really opened me up over the course of my life about the significance of why we take communion. There wasn't anything wrong with how my home church did it. In fact, there are some beautiful things about it. But I think the point of what I hope we can explore today, church, is why do we take communion? The significance of it. And what does it mean for us to do that? And now you may have some questions about, you know, what is the Lord's Supper? Why do we call it the Lord's Supper? Is it called communion or the Eucharist? And what about the different practices? And we're going to just talk about those. But our hope and my aim is not to just have a systematic approach of answering some questions about it, but to, to get to the root of this issue. And I think the beauty of the two things, as Brian alluded to, that the Lord commanded us to do are baptism and the Lord's Supper. The two things that we are called to do that, that really define the, the rights of the church are those things. You see, you may know this or you may not, and so some of this is going to be somewhat new, maybe a history lesson for some and, and others, but there is a long history and development of the Lord's Supper. And what is the Lord's Supper? Some churches call it the Lord's Supper. Other people call it communion. You may even hear, heard of a term called the Eucharist, which is a Greek word, eucharisto, which means to give thanks. And we see in Scripture, particularly the Synoptic Gospels, it's also in John, it's more alluded to. It doesn't go into great detail, even though Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. It's in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22 that we see Jesus and his disciples gathered for what? The Passover meal. And it's in that place, in that context, that, that Jesus reframes this whole conversation and takes this, this ceremony from Judaism and he points it now to, to the work that he is going to do. And it's where he takes the bread and he breaks the bread and gives it to the disciples and he takes the cup and says, this is my cup. This is my blood poured out for you and he gives it to them. Now there's much more that we could dive into each of these questions, but, but this is where we get it from, that Jesus there with the disciples in that upper room and he says, do this in remembrance of me. That at that point, Jesus instituted, ordained this act. That followers of, of him are to, to come together to partake in the breaking of bread and the sharing of the cup. And thankfully, we even have that in Paul's letter to the first Corinthians in chapter 11, where Paul actually writes about this. And now there are some things that were going on that we will see that shouldn't have been going on in that church that Paul had to address. But he says the very same things that, that we see took place in that upper room. So whether you call it the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or Communion or the Eucharist, 
It's all to be centered upon Christ and what he's done. Another question that I began to think about as I was exploring this, not only what is the Lord's Supper, but why do we practice it? And as I alluded to, that Jesus gave those two ordinances. He says, yes, these are the things that you are to do. They are religious rites that Jesus passed on to his disciples. He ordained them and instituted them. He tells us to go and to baptize, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the other is to break bread with one another. That's the simplest answer that I can give you that Jesus tells us to, he commands us to, of why we are to practice the Lord's Supper. Another question that often gets discussed is who can participate in the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? Why do we practice it? And who can participate in it? You see, our own kind of doctrinal statement of the Baptist faith and message, the 2000, we actually don't follow the exact wording of the 2000 Baptist faith and message. We're pretty good Baptist on that. We kind of pick what we want and we kind of like all the rest except maybe this part. But our own Baptist faith and message says that you have to be a member of our church to follow, to partake in the Lord's Supper. Now, our church hasn't practiced that for some time. I know from while well, I've been here, and I'm pretty sure when the previous pastors before me, but those who profess faith in Christ Jesus can participate in it. And now there's, again, a whole other conversation that can be centered about why it's only excluded to, to church membership. Some churches will put certain fences or parameters about who can do that. Others may have very, like, barbed wire fences, and it's very particular about who can participate in that. And, and I'm not one here to cast judgment on any other church of how they seek to practice the Lord's Supper. But I think from what we can see in Scripture, and particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that we see that, that likely all those who profess faith in Christ Jesus can practice and partake in the Lord's Supper. That if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then you are welcome to take it. And that goes back to also the local expression of the church, but also the church universal. How does all that fit in? And again, time does not allow, but, but I would say that the way we practice here in this church, that if you are a professing follower of Jesus, then you are welcome at the table. If he is Lord and Savior of your life, you are welcome. Now, another question that I think about as I was preparing this, and, and again, we're going to get to some really, I think, the meat of what we're talking about, but I, I don't know about you, but I ask a lot of questions about things, about why do we do this? Why do we do that? And I think, why do we practice it the way we practice it? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we partake in the Lord's Supper the way we do as Baptists? I mean, if, if you like history, you can really explore a lot of great things because prior to about probably the mid-1800s, probably most Baptists used wine. Grape juice hadn't been invented yet. It, in fact, it was a Methodist who invented grape juice. They were able to pasteurize uh, 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 grapes. When you squeeze them and you just leave them, they'll, they'll ferment and turn into wine, and they found a way to pasteurize it and so that you didn't get the, the fermenting process to turn it into wine. His name was Dr. Welch. He was a dentist. It's a true story. You can go read it. It's really fascinating. But we have the Methodists to thank for that. 
of creating grape juice for us Baptists. <laughs> but, but you see, church, there's a history of why we do all that we do. And sometimes it gets lost upon us, and then it becomes tradition, and we don't know why we do the things that we do. Perhaps why do we take it quarterly? The best I can surmise is that one of the reformers, a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, was the one who suggested that we should take it maybe four times a year. But there were other reformers, John Calvin at one, even though it didn't happen in his churches, that he proposed to do it weekly. You can go to different churches and some will practice it monthly, some will do it quarterly, some will do it twice a year, some will only do it at Sunday nights. But what are we to do? Well, the Bible is pretty silent on this matter. The closest that I think you could find about pointing to how often one is to take it is you have to go to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. There it talks about that on the first week they gathered together to break bread. Now, most likely, the closest to the New Testament practice is that it was done on a weekly basis. Now, the way we do communion or the Lord's Supper is very different than how they did it even in the first century, that there was often a meal that was gathered around this practice. They would have a meal, and then they would take the bread and the cup and remember what Christ had done. And this is what we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this practice that was playing out in that early church, but it likely was on a weekly basis. So why do we do it where we pass it in silver trays with little plastic cups and little bitty unleavened squared pieces of bread? I'm not sure, but that's okay. That's okay. Because you see, the Bible doesn't give details about exactly how you are to practice it. But it just tells us that we are to practice it. There's freedom. Now, I think the question that I wrestle with the most when I think about communion, the Lord's Supper, is what's going on at a theological level? What takes place when we actually take the bread and we eat it, and we take the cup and we drink it? Now, again, I say this a lot on this sermon, but it's one that has really been a conversation among the church in general for the past 2,000 years. It has varying degrees, even within the Roman Catholic Church and how they view the Mass. Communion, what we would call it, the Lord's Supper. What's the meaning behind it? What takes place when we do that? And without boring everyone to sleep at this point, that there is this long tradition in about the 13th century, at this point, a guy named Thomas Aquinas and other uh, theologians at this point, you had the Roman Catholic Church uh, the East and the West had split among the church at this point. You had the Eastern Orthodox Church, and you had the Western Roman Catholic Church that split not over communion, but something else very much more trivial, so to speak. But at that point, what the Roman Catholic Church did is they kind of codified, they really cemented what had been working to this point for centuries. And they believed in something called transubstantiation. Now, there's a lot more to transubstantiation, but what it means is that 
the bread and the cup become the, the literal body and blood of Christ. Now, it's not bloody that you see, but that there is something that takes place to where it transforms. That's the word trans. Right there, transubstantiation, this Greek root, that it transforms into the literal body and blood of Christ. And then from that, it begins to kind of take a life of its own. And then about the 1500s, we get Martin Luther come to the scene and the reformers that begin to see these practices that had really partaken to this place and taken communion to the church to a place that was not even a reflection of what we see in Scripture. Now, I'm not going to get into the, to the rest of Catholic theology at that point, but, but that was what they were pushing back against in the Reformation. The likes of Martin Luther and John Calvin and Balthazar Hubmeier and Ord Zwingli, they were all talking about these things and trying to say, okay, what is taking place when we partake in communion? Luther is closest to this Catholic position, and I'm not going to, again, share all the details. You can find this on various websites that will help explain it in more detail. John Calvin had his thoughts, but Baptists, in many rites, are closest to the guy named Ulrich Zwingli. He went on to write that the Lord's Supper, that communion, was a memorial. It's, it's a memory. There's symbolism to it. That's what it's pointing to, that it doesn't actually become the body and the blood of Christ, but it is a symbolism to what Christ has done for us. It's a picture, an image. Those words that he would write that do this in remembrance of me are to evoke a response for the faithful, for what Christ has done through his death and resurrection. There wasn't anything salvific about the elements that in the Roman Catholic Church, there is very much about uh, a tying to grace in Christ's death when you took the elements, when you took that bread and you took that cup. But Zwingli doesn't say that in his Baptist, what we see in Scripture, and, and it alludes to and points to that it's very much a, a remembrance of what Christ has done, that his death and resurrection was something that was final and complete. And we do it to recount, to retell that story. We're not saved by this means of grace of partaking in the Lord's Supper. But it's to draw us to something deeper. To remind us of our commitment to Christ. To spur us on, to correct us, to rebuke us. All because of what Christ has done through his death and resurrection. But also, I think that there's something powerful, though, about communion. It's not just a picture. It's not just something that's done in memory. While it is that, I'm going to speak out the other side of my mouth, so just hold on to this. It is a memory. It is a symbolism. But there's also something that we see that it does, that it, it truly makes a group of people where it's no longer just a Bible study, per se, but into a church. Because what makes a church a church? Have y'all thought about that ever? What makes church, church? I do all the time. I, it's a question that constantly I'm thinking about. What makes church, church? 
Is it because we show up here on a Sunday morning? Is that what makes church, church? Is it possibly we come to Sunday school class? Is that church? What makes church, church? What makes this different from just a Bible study in the middle of the week? These are questions that I don't necessarily have all the answers. Simple questions with very complex answers, aren't they? And as I was thinking about this question and reading, I come across this because we're working on some things at one of our buildings, and it's the 100th anniversary of our church. And it talks about the origins of our church. Sometime in the summer of the year of 1876, a meeting of the Baptists in the town of Eastland was called to meet in a sawmill situated near where a building once stood for the purpose of organizing a Baptist church. So there was a guy who worked at a sawmill, put out a call and said, hey, if you're Baptist, or maybe if another church didn't want them in their church anymore, they could come to the Baptist church. They could show up. And it goes on to say it is not known just what responded, who responded to the call, but the church was organized by Reverend Wingo, a laborer at the mill. The participants in the organization sitting on the logs brought there to be made into lumber. The names of all those participating in the organization is also not known other than the Reverend Wingo, but it's reasonable to suppose that J.S. Bedford, A.J. Stewart, J.E. Yarbrough were among the number there as they appear as trustees of the church in a deed from Connolly, Daughtery, and Ammerman to Bedford, and Stuart Yarbrough conveying lots, 11 and 12. He goes on to say, in February of 1880, the following names, brothers and sisters, were organized into the church under the name, the Missionary Baptist Church of Eastland. So our name wasn't even actually called the First Baptist Church of Eastland. It was the Missionary Baptist Church of Eastland. And Braxton and I, one day, as we were doing some digging around in the, the library at that point, we found some very interesting information about all this stuff. But it goes on to list a group of names. A.J. Stewart, from wife to Bannell, daughter Lenore, J.S. Bedford, H. James Mead, Walters, Joseph, Goodall, Chase Jenkins, and wife Minnie, Eddie and William Townsend, Terry and W.M. Perkins. And it goes through and lists. At some point, these people weren't just meeting meet, but they moved into a church, calling themselves a church. So what signifies? When does a church become a church? It's a question I think about, and I think for many, and what we see even in Scripture, if we back up one chapter in 1 Corinthians, if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll see verses 16 and 17. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You see, the whole point of the book of 1 Corinthians is what the, there's this unity taking place. We see that in chapter 1. Some are saying, I follow Paul, I fo follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And they're divided. And Paul rebukes them for that. And then in here in this place, the cup of blessing that we bless, which is 
the one that Jesus talks about and instituted, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. It's a profound phrase right there. We who are many are one body. You see, when we partake in the Lord's Supper, it is this symbolic act. We are this representation of an, a new people. We're coming together from different races and generations. We're not tied by blood, but we're now bound together into one another through Christ. And in many ways, I might dare to say, and again, I'm not going to say that you can't take communion at any other place. I'm not saying that. But you see, I'm sure for our church, it was when they started baptizing and taking communion together that was that initial act of them becoming a church and not just a Bible study. There's something significant to that, hey, we're telling the world that while in the world's eyes we may be different than many, but here in this place we are one body. Paul talks about this in Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. That there's really some strife going between Gentiles and Jews and, and all that's taking place. There's racism between these two groups. We've seen this in our study through Romans. But that hostility has been defeated by the work of Christ. And in fact, that Paul will go on to say that there is a new household that make up the people of faith. And those people are to be reconciled to one another as Christ has reconciled himself to us. So yes, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It, it is symbolism about what Christ has done for us, but it also, in this mysterious way, and I'm okay with a little bit of mystery in my faith, that there is something that it binds us together. How? I don't know. but I trust that God is doing something in the midst of all that. That he's taking people who may not necessarily get along outside these walls, but in this place that we all come before the Lord to be reconciled to one another. And that's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm not going to read all of the text, but in verses 17 through 22, Thank goodness that the Corinthians were kind of messed up. Because if they weren't, we wouldn't have a lot of really great things for us to be able to study and to learn and to help us in this day. Because they were. And Paul tells them in this point in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Y'all have missed it. And at that point, he goes on to say that these house churches that are in Corinth, there's probably 30 to 40 people. The way they are remembering the Lord's Supper is one that is, is not pleasing to God. You see, you have to understand, kind of, we know this through archaeology, that houses of wealthy individuals in these cities, in Corinth and Rome and other places, they had what's called a triclinium. It was in the inside house, and it was the place, the, the main dining room, so to speak. It was the formal dining room, if, you have, if anyone has a formal dining room in their house. And it could hold about seven to nine people. And in the triclinium would be the place where the guest of honor could go. And whoever 
had, was hosting the house church, was likely one of the wealthier members, and there probably was some other well-established people that they had connections with, and they would be invited to sit in the triclinium. But the slaves and maybe just your average freeman, they had to sit out in the atrium. So there'd be another 30 people outside looking in at this inner triclinium of these people just feasting, and these other people wouldn't have anything. In this picture, it's, it's like when you get on an airplane and first class is already on the plane and you have to walk by them and they've got their lounge chairs out and they have their AirPods in and they got a blanket and they're cozied up and then you got to walk through the business class and then you go sit back where I usually sit, which is in coach, and there's about six of us across the row and we're smashed in there like sardines. <laughs> that's right. But you see, that's... That's kind of what's taking place here. And Paul is rebuking them because they are indulging in themselves and they are not remembering those on the outside. They are partaking in the Lord's Supper in vain. There are some who are going hungry, and yet those nine people on the inside are just living high on the hog and eating high on the hog. And Paul says, you can't do that. It's causing division. It's interesting. Paul doesn't also tell them, hey, you can't eat what you want to eat in your own house. But when you're with the body, when you're with the body, you have to have everyone in mind. And then Paul then says in verses 23 through 26, he says very much of what we see in the synoptic gospels. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. For the given things, he broke it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then in verses 27 through 34, he gives a solemn warning of judgment about what will take place if, if you don't participate, if you don't partake in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. In the context here, we can often individualize this, which I think there's an individual element, but in the context here is they were failing to remember the poor among them. And Paul warns very starkly of judgment. He doesn't give necessarily examples about how to discern when that judgment's taking place, but I think we all have to to sit with the uncomfortableness that judgment can incur, that the Lord can disappoint. How to always identify that, I'm not entirely sure, but I think Paul speaks of it, that there is a real possibility that we can miss the significance of the Lord's Supper, of not being reconciled to one another, of holding on to bitterness, among the church, dividing the church. So when I look at this passage, there's four things that stand out, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. And the first is that, that Paul has established what the Lord's Supper does is it creates a new family. That it's no longer about blood, but about our union with Christ. And when you profess Christ as Lord and and we see being involved in the local church that you are part of that family. And that with that, 
of being a part of that new family, because of your relationship with Christ, because Christ has reconciled us to him, then we are to be reconciled to one another. And so it creates something completely new, this new household that the world will look at and see and marvel at. How is it that this group can welcome everyone from different walks of life? And now we don't do this perfectly, but our hope is to live as a new family, doesn't mean there won't be struggles or challenges, but that Christ is the center of that new family. The second is that we see Paul talk about remembering the poor. When we take the Lord's Supper, we should remember the poor. We should remember the least of those among us, but also in our community. Matthew 25 gives us those warnings that Jesus shares in verses 31 through 36. Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. And they'll ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he says, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of least of these, you did not do it to me. So not only does the Lord's Supper create a new family, but it also calls us to remember the poor. Because you see, that's the context of why Paul wrote this. We would never know Paul's words had those Corinthians not been partaking in the Lord's Supper in a manner that's not worthy of Christ. And I think for us that it is a reminder to always, always care for the least of these in our community. The third thing it does is it focuses, focuses us on the death of Jesus. It should remind us. It's that symbol, that memorial of what Christ has done for us. So on an individual level, we need to understand what Christ has done for us and what he's called us to. To be in relationship with him, but also not just relationship with him, because you can't be a Christian without other people. It's always in community, because what does it do? It creates a new family. And so, Jesus tells us, by focusing on the death of Jesus, we are called to remember the sacrifice Christ made for us, that he gave himself up for us, and that it pushes us out horizontally with one another. And the fourth thing that it does, church, is it helps us anticipate God's future kingdom. It helps us anticipate God's future kingdom. It's interesting, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus says these words, particularly in Matthew and Mark, they're not in Luke. He says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And what does Paul say? What did he say in his own text? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. So we anticipate the future. That one day God will return. It's this promise that we see. The power of it isn't just this memorial of Christ's death and what he's done for us, but a future hope that we will be gathered up in God's kingdom. And that he will establish his kingdom on earth. 
too will experience the resurrection. This hope that we have that not all is lost in the Lord. And so when we take communion, yes, we should remember the death of Jesus, but churches should give us hope like no other. That there is something significant that is taking place and that our hope is not in the things of this world, but that one day we will gather at the table of Christ Jesus himself with all divisions and all generations and all ethnicities and nationalities. And it will be a beautiful, beautiful feast for God's people. So why does all this matter for us? Why am I talking about the Lord's Supper? Well, starting next week and over the next five weeks, at the conclusion of our service, we will partake in the Lord's Supper for five weeks in a row, which I know is a little bit different for our Baptist church, but that's okay. The Bible doesn't tell us how many times we can take it. But my hope is, church, is we are really thinking about what does God long to do through our church? For those five weeks, we will gather together to remember, to be a new family, to remember the poor, to reflect upon Christ's death, and also to anticipate a glorious future. That part of it is just to draw us together as a church body so that God will send us out. And I hope over these next five weeks, and that's why I want to continue to invite you to tell others that they don't want to miss what's going to take place. But that what God is doing, that we will act upon that here at that table next week and the following weeks. We will and something beautiful will take place when we do that. That we will be a sign and a foretaste to a lost and hurting world that is in need of salvation, that's in need of redemption. So I hope that you will begin to reflect, to think and ponder anew about the significance of the Lord's Supper. And next week when we partake in that as a church body, may it be an encouragement to each and every one of us. Let us pray. God, we come before you. We thank you for this day. I ask, Lord, that you begin to draw our hearts and our minds in preparing us to partake in the Lord's Supper next week. God, that you will do something new in each of our lives, that your spirit will move through that. As we retell the gospel story and what you have done through the world and what you will do in the world in the future. May we look to you in all that we do. And we pray these things. In Jesus' name.